Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship, where we get to talk horses. I'm your host, John Hare. And I'm Renee Hare. Thanks for listening and sharing our horsemanship journey. On today's show, we have equestrian journalist, author, and horseman, Tom Motes. Much like me, Tom came to horses late in life. But his journey into horsemanship started with a much more exciting event. Yeah, the first time I went to a clinic, I rode in a clinic with that horse, and I had a wreck, and the horse took off and bolted in this arena and stopped right at a fence, and the cinch broke, and I flew off the horse, and me and the cinch and the saddle and everything hit the ground, and luckily I went between two fence posts and a bottom oak board like a hockey puck in a goal, boom, down a hill, and that's kind of the way it started. We'll get to Tom in a minute, but first we want to tell you a little bit about a fun ride that we had at uh, the Hanson Dam Recreational Area in Southern California. Yeah, it's about a two-hour drive from where we are in Bakersfield, and it's just a whole other world. It is, and it was a group ride. What were there, six Six. Mm -hmm. horses? It was an ETI pre-ride. We were setting the course for the ride that the group would take on a few days. The following weekend, Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting dynamics when you're riding with a group of people. There, uh, There's a lot of stuff going on. It's a new environment, so you have that to work with. And it's not just a simple trail ride. It's not. It's It has a lot of technical areas, a lot of water, um, a lot of growth. You have to really be alert, keep your eyes open. They've cut back a lot of areas, so there are like stubs of little tree limbs everywhere right yeah <laughs> you, have to, you have to keep your eyes open some, and some of it was very jungle like there was a yeah. lot of bamboo and there was a uh, the ton of water crossings we must mm-hmm. have crossed water a dozen or so times and the the group dynamics is very interesting too you want to enjoy the uh, company of your friends but you also have to pay attention to your horse and how did dusty do dusty did really well he's um he typically is that drag horse he likes to kind of bring up the rear so we made a point to get a little more up in in the front of the line for part of the ride Um, but he was pretty calm and relaxed around everybody but still something that you want to be aware of if your horse is not paying attention to you or maybe reacts to another horse's actions you have to be ready Uh, i was riding uh, scratched my oak creek horse and he he did pretty well too. A couple of times he got a, a little bit nervous. You ride the trail along the freeway is above us, Part of it. but you're still on a on kind of a, this windy tree filled trail. So you have that. So the noise are, noises are coming from almost all directions, and there are a couple of helicopters and planes that flew over. It's a very busy area in it. Los Angeles, of course. I kept him going and kept him busy doing stuff, and for for the most part, he did pretty well. We actually it was gosh, it was a two-hour ride or so. Two hours, forty minutes. And on the way on the way back, I started coming up with different things for him to do that would kind of get his mind engaged because he was just I think he was falling asleep part of the way there, just <laughs> watching the horse's butt in front of him, and and so we started uh, finding. Uh, dead tree branches to cross mm-hmm. and and uh, rocks to go around and things like that. And I thought that 
keeping him busy was a, uh, was a good thing. Was a good thing. Right. right. The one thing I had to work with Dusty on was because you're on this trail and because you're following along behind another horse's butt, their, their default mechanism is moving. So I was helping to tie the twine on the trees. Oh. And I, w- I wanted to stop to tie the t- twine on the tree the, the first mar- time. The markers for the upcoming ride. Yeah, he just kept walking. And I said, wait a minute. So I had to bring him back and, and work on our woes. He he got better after the first one. <laughs> our woes and staying woed. <laughs> There's a lot more energy when you ride with the group of horses. You've got the energy of uh, of all those other horses. And if one of them goes up, then everybody's goes up. So it's a good experience. And if you can... Get out there and uh, have a big trail ride with your friends. It's, it's good to vary it. Different locations, different group sizes. And now, on to today's guest, Tom Motes. Tom writes for uh, several magazines. He's written for uh, quite a number of years. He writes for Eclectic Horseman, AQHA Journal, just to name a few. He's also authored a number of books, Six Colts, Two Weeks, Colts Starting with Harry Whitney. That's his most re- recent. Mm-hmm. And then Tom has a series of books called Journey into Horsemanship. And one of his most popular books is A Horse's Thoughts. And that was that first book on that really just started his journey into horsemanship, helped him develop his, his relationship with horses. His newest writing is called Considering Horsemanship. And that he is releasing in uh, sets of chapters. So the first five chapters made part one. The second five chapters make part two, and uh, then there's more to come, too. There are, and those are all available on Kindle right now. And it's a never-ending story with Tom. <laughs> he loves to write, and he loves to ride. <laughs> there you go. So without further ado, here's Tom Motes on the Woe Podcast. We're speaking this morning with Tom Motes, equestrian journalist, author, and clinician from Virginia. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing today? Uh, good morning, John and Renee, and thank you all for having me on the show. I appreciate it. We were looking through a, a lot of different horsemanship and horse people, and we ran across uh, your articles. We we enjoy reading your articles in various magazines. We get the AQHA Journal here, and but we also like the way that you write and and talk about horsemanship, and we wanted to learn more about your history and how you came to be an equestrian journalist and then a clinician. Can you give us a little bit of a background on your... Yeah, and I don't know that my uh, my path has been very <laughs> typical, but um, I always set out to be a writer, and I went to university and got a degree in writing and was working on that, and was writing for some magazines around the country. And um, when I was in my early 30s, my wife, who had in a former life, had horses, just sort of out of the blue, uh, saw an ad for a horse in the newspaper, and we went out and we brought this horse home. Now, I grew up on a dairy farm. I'd been around cattle my whole life, uh-huh. farming in spaces, and I had fed plenty of horses and, and ridden a couple times, but hadn't uh, really clicked with horses. And she brought this horse home, and she likes to say that I turned into a 12-year-old girl, which is kind of embarrassing, <laughs> but... And, in the sense of being that obsessed with horses, it's pretty true. And I, I wanted to know, I wanted to learn about horses, and I wanted to learn about horsemanship especially, and I wanted to understand how I could improve my relationship with this with this horse. Uh, the horse at the time, the first one was named Niji. So 
I set about applying my skills as a writer to the topics of horses. And when my obsession with writing and my obsession with horses <laughs> met, that's, that's when my career really took off. And I think it's because I was just so genuinely, obsessively interested in getting answers and learning more. And, you know, aren't, aren't we all, all of us who are, who, who have this, this disorder of <laughs> horse love, but we, we crave knowledge and we want to, we want to have a better relationship. And so I would ask the questions I had, and I had a unique position because I could have access to a lot of different right. um, horsemen and women around the world. I would ask questions and, and develop these things into articles and then into essays and then into books. And, um, my, uh, best-known books is a series of, of five books, and it's really a memoir of my experiences trying to get better with horses, uh, mainly with the guidance of the, the mentor that I've sort of connected with, and his name is, is Harry Whitney, who's a mm-hmm. horsemanship cl- clinician for um, several decades and is based out of Arizona. So that's that's kind of the overview. <laughs> now, did you uh, have a problem with that first horse that led you to believe oh, gosh, you know, um, I need to know more about horses and let me go out and find it? Or was that curiosity always there? Well, I, I think I had nothing but problems with that first horse. <laughs> Plus, it was my wife's horse. That makes it even worse. Um, <laughs> yeah, the first time I went to a clinic, I rode in a clinic with that horse. I had a wreck, and the horse took off and bolted mm-hmm. in this arena and stopped right at a fence, and the cinch broke, and I flew off the horse and me and the cinch and the saddle and everything hit the ground. And luckily I went between two fence posts and a bottom oak board, like a hockey puck in a goal, boom, <laughs> down a hill. And, and that's kind of the way it started. So one of the things that, that I've done is I've been really honest about my problems, about my wrecks, and <laughs> about my difficulties over the years. And also asking the questions, well, why did that happen? And, who can help me and what can I do differently that a lot of times when I receive emails from folks who've read my books, it's really, it's really nice when they say, you know, thank you for writing this book. I mean, people can write and say, Oh, I enjoyed it. Or, Oh, I was entertained by it. When they thank you for writing a book like that, you know, it's had a special meaning for them. And people will say they felt like they were the only ones who had this, this problem. And then, when I talked about it, they felt relieved that, they, oh, they're not the only one. They're not stupid. You know, we we all are in this horsemanship journey who are um, interested in, in getting better with horses, and we all come up against these things. So I just, you know, put it out there as honestly as I could. Uh, and I think that's really resonated with people, and I think that's why the books have done so well. Yeah, it's a great series of, of books that you've written, and you've got a, a new one out, too, the that you're breaking down into kind of pieces, I think. Yes, yeah. Well, one of the things about writing books is you don't get paid until the book get, gets out. <laughs> so <laughs> and it could take me a couple of years to put one of these books together. Mm-hmm. So I have people that are uh, clamoring for, for more material. And um, so what I decided to do was take, I've got... I don't know how many pages of journals that I've kept from the Harry Whitney clinics that I've attended over the years. So what I'm doing is I'm going back and I'm taking 
quotes or instances from those clinic journals and using those instances as a jumping off point into a chapter, essentially an essay. Mm. And it's, it's really fun for me because I'll go back and I'll see something I did eight years ago at a clinic or saw eight years ago at a clinic, but it, it relates to what I'm doing now, both as a teacher and as, as, a, as a student of the horse. And so even though I'm reflecting in these, these journals, I'm finding that what I'm really writing about is much more current, even though that's the jumping off point. And so I'm, I'm publishing them as very affordable Kindle books. I think they're you know, two ninety nine or something like that, and there are five chapters in each one. Uh, there are two out at the moment, so chapters one through five, and then chapters six through ten. And when I get to about twenty five or thirty chapters, and I have a whole book, that will then eventually be printed as a full uh, print book, and we'll do a full um, ebook as well once it's done. But that it just no allows no people to have no, access to the writing idea. as it goes along, and it helps me to. Uh, afford to be able to continue to to write and go to clinics and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, all those work-a-day things that we have to do. Tom, as you said, you had access to a whole lot of horse people. What was it about Harry that drew you to him? Well, that's a really good question. And I was doing what I, and I still do these, mainly at a magazine called Eclectic Horseman, which Mm -hmm. is one of my main magazines, what I call roundtable discussions. And I start with, an idea, a question that I have about horsemanship, something that I want to know more about. And then I will ask different clinicians to give opinions on that, and then I present them all in in one article so we can all sit around the table and talk about one topic. And I was doing one on uh, picking up a soft feel, which is a term you hear about in the the horsemanship circles. I'm like, what, what is that? What is that? What does that even mean, you know? And I talked to a bunch of different clinicians around the country, and somebody said, oh, you have to talk to this this guy, Harry Whitney. And I said, well, sure, you know, give me his number. And so we connected on the telephone, and I was instantly, it was instantly obvious how different Harry was from everyone else that I had talked to. And I mean, in a sense of, he was extremely careful to try to talk about the topic using words and language that I could understand. He took he was he was very humble and unflustered and there was no showmanship in it and he wasn't selling himself as a clinician. He was really talking to me to help me better understand, to help my horses. And I felt that on a level I had never felt with anyone else before. So he even got to the point in that conversation where he said, you know, it's hard to talk about these things when we have a horse in front of us and we're sitting here talking about this horse. To discuss this over the phone Mm -hmm. is even more difficult. Um, And he said, why don't you come out for a couple of weeks at clinics here in Arizona and we'll we'll go over some of these things. And so uh, it was not good timing, but I threw caution to the wind and pulled out (laughs) a credit card and said, all right, I'm going to do this anyway, and went out there. And it really, it's it's changed my life. I mean, you know, basically it was one of those crossroads where, boom, everything sort of takes a hard turn in in a direction. The whole basis of my understanding of horsemanship radically altered during those two weeks. Uh, the first book of that series is called A Horse's Thought, 
And that comes directly from Harry's ideas, his teaching of we need to understand and and access a horse's thought. And uh, that book really... It, that book has become sort of a modern equestrian classic. It outsells everything else. It was number one on the Amazon bestsellers list as, as early as, as recent as three weeks ago. Oh, um, good for you. Yeah. yeah, and it's 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 phenomenal how what staying power it has. And I think it's because I was so new to the to horsemanship, and there was so much visual going on with me mm-hmm. that I. It was helping me understand that when I when I talk about those things on the page, other people also can vicariously sort of grasp what what was unfolding with me and, and trying to understand what what Harry's talking about. And at right. that time, when I was in Arizona for the first time and at a few of those first clinics. And how long ago was that? That's been ten years, eleven years ago. Okay. It was '06 uh, when that was. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's more than a decade ago now. I don't uh-huh. know where this time is going. But. <laughs> <laughs> but it does. It does. <laughs> you mentioned that you kept journals of when you were at those clinics, and how long would those journal entries be? Uh, the first two weeks, I had over eighty pages of journal notes. Oh my goodness! Um, and that fed into a horse's thought. I'm working on um, another series of books. The first one has been released here for the last couple of years, and it's called uh, Six Colts, Two Weeks. Oh, I and saw that one. <laughs> Yeah, Harry does not do cult starting clinics, but he did one, and it's because his girlfriend and her sister ended up buying a bunch of uh, ranch horses in a in a sale, and he happened to have these six colts there that needed some work. So he put together this this two week uh, cult starting deal, and he and two other uh, of my friends um, who are really fabulous horse people. One is Anna Bonage, who's in England. And Ty Haas, who's in uh, Kansas, they came and helped Harry work these colts. And because there was limited availability of space at Harry's ranch there, we um, had, I think, 20 auditors was all. And I took, I've got 92 hours of recorded audio. Uh, I've got about 100 pages of notes and about, I don't know, probably 8,000 pictures. And um, the first week is volume one. So I've completed the first week into this volume one, and I'm working on volume two. And it is so difficult because there's so much good material in it that I just don't know what to call. So I'm, I don't know, I may end up with I'm still on Monday morning and I'm like, this is, a, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> it's an encyclopedia. What can I do? So, but it's so, it's so important, I think. And Harry, he does not do videos. He does not do books. And, mm. you know, I don't try to, these are in no way how-to books. These mm. are, my observations and experiences. Mm-hmm. So I think Harry's become comfortable with me in that I don't try to present his work as a program or as necessarily like a, a cookie cutter way to do things. I'm really right. talking about uh, my observations and experiences. And Harry, um, I always give him the courtesy of, of checking the things out before I print them. One, to make sure that I've got you know, learning myself that I've got the things right, but also 
um, that the context is is correct and 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 I haven't gotten sideways on something that we'd put out there for folks that would be that would be wrong or misleading, you know. So. Right. With all of us in this horsemanship journey, we are we need those types of things. We need to be able to read somebody's observations and opinions and they may not they may not make sense to us at the time we read them, but somewhere along when we're working with horses, we're going to go, oh, you know, I, re- I read this re- approach or this description. And, and well, as a matter of fact, that article in the AQHA journal you were talking about, Spooking on the Trail, and you mm-hmm. yeah, you, you, des- you described a woman who would ride with her children, and she would have a little fire drill. She would scream, oh, no, and all the kids had to do, do a one-rain stop. And I was reading that to Renee's going, we did we that. We did that. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. I, said, I said, one time during our ride, each of us have to uh, have a surprise attack. And <laughs> the other person has to say one rain stop. And we, <laughs> so, so, but that was, you know, that's how we kind of go through this journey is to try and get information from as many different places as, as we can get it from. Yeah, and you know that's. I, I was really pleased that the AQHA they approached me to write that article, and as a journalist, oftentimes what editors are looking for is five easy steps to this or that, which right. I don't write because that's not how horses are. And <laughs> it, the cookie cutter approach does not work. You know, everything depends on kind of everything, <clears throat> but you know, you get an assignment like that, and you think, well, maybe that's what they're looking for. But I decided I'm going to write the article that I, that I would, I'm going to write this honestly, what I believe, what I know to be true um, and present these ideas and to their uh, great benefit, you know, to their, to give kudos to them. They, they were fine with that. They said, yeah, Tom run with it. And I'm really excited about that article because, you know, I'm really able to make the point that, you deal with spooking on the trail in large part by preparing before you ever get to the trail, preparing with your horse before you get to the trail. And that puts us into horsemanship. And so when we work on our horsemanship, what are we doing? And, and hopefully, you know, one of the things that's first and foremost is we're, we're trying to get our relationship with our horses as good as possible in ideal conditions so that when we go into adverse conditions, uh, we'll have at least a chance of having things work out, being able to support our horses, have our horses look to us for an answer, be able to hear us when, when things are, are really going sideways. I think that's so important. And people come, you know, to me with, with horses or I bring horses to clinics because they're having these, these problems. But yeah, they're having a problem when they're on the trail. They're having a problem when they're at the canter. Well, the problem started back at the stall or, you know, <laughs> and, and, but people have a very difficult time and I'm as guilty of this as anybody. Um, I just was riding in a clinic with Harry and he pointed some things out to me and I'm like, Oh my God, you know, so I'm, I'm not saying this in an arrogant, you know, <laughs> vessel of knowledge kind of way, you know, I'm, I'm saying, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm part of this deal, but it's so helpful to have someone who can help us understand in, in, in more smaller and smaller and earlier, earlier moments where these problems are coming in. And what I've come to understand is the underlying issue with these problems is where's the horse's thought. 
Where is the mm-hmm. horse's mind? Mm-hmm. And if the horse is, if we have access to the horse's mind, then the horse never weighs anything in our hands. We offer a feel, simply communication, and the horse turns, looks, and takes his body there. We don't have to ever use our biceps for that, you know. Right. And and if we don't have that, then that's where our problems and our difficulties come in with horses because the horse is going one way and we say we really need to go this way and mm-hmm. then there's that hard spot in there and right. that's that spot can be seen in, in really, really small spots if we know what we're looking for, but but so often we don't we don't notice that because one, we don't feel threatened by it. Mm-hmm. You know, but when we get on the horse all of a sudden we feel potential bodily danger, you know, and then it, then it becomes meaningful. <laughs> you know, I really try to encourage people to uh, try to work on horsemanship and not just, you know, go out there and, and, and get into trouble, get into a wreck. We'll see that on the trail quite often. Riders not really engaged with their horses. They're just sort of sitting up there and having a conversation and not really paying attention to where the horse's brain is. Yeah. yeah, I don't really go on trail rides because I'm no fun. <laughs> all People I do, say that about John. <laughs> all I want to do is work on my horse and have that horse feeling better, and I'm so right. excited about that that I don't care what the clouds look like. And, uh, yeah. you know, oh, a bird. I'm, just, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really not that much fun. <laughs> One of the things I like about your approach, too, is there, I mean, face it, there's a lot of great horsemen out there, and they've They've been around horses all their lives. They've handled, you know, thousands of different horses. They've seen a thousand different personalities. But there are few people that can come from the perspective where you've gotten a horse late in life, you've gotten into horsemanship late in life, and you're kind of learning this stuff as you go. You know, you can talk about it from a perspective of that general recreational horse rider that sometimes Mm -hmm. those those polished professionals don't really know where we're coming from. They don't know that we're struggling with, you know, work. Very basic things. Yeah, it's work, oh. it's family, it's job, and the, and it's also the horse that you, you get to see on weekends, and now you've got to figure out a way to relate to them. And you thought you were just going to go out there to, to brush your horse, and then you get on him bareback, and then all of a sudden he's running away with you, and you're, <laughs> you, you know, you're running into those types of problems. So I, I really appreciate your point of view in approaching horsemanship? I tell you, there are a lot of people that are starting in horses later in life. It's, I think it's very prevalent. The vast majority of people that I see at clinics and that I see, uh, that I get response from in the books are, are women. There are some guys, but it's by far more women. And I think that so many people in general, but women in particular, are getting to that age where the kids are gone, Mm -hmm. they are reaching retirement age, they've always wanted to have a horse, and now they can afford to do that, and and they're at a a spot in life, and and so they they go, and it is, I think, an incredibly enriching experience for these people. Um, Of course, when we're older in life, we're more brittle, (laughs) we're not as we don't bounce as well. <laughs> and, and, but I think that that is wonderful because I think that it puts an emphasis in our general conversations about horses back on horsemanship, you know, because yes. people want to enjoy horses without getting hurt. And face it, you know, when you're, when you're 18, you don't worry about getting hurt as much. 
But it doesn't mean you wouldn't benefit from understanding these ideas as much as a, as a, as a 65-year-old person. I, I think us who are, are getting into horses later in life have done quite a bit towards the conversation, enriching the conversation and keeping it going and being interested and keeping the magazines talking about these things, all those, all those kinds of deals. And uh, so, yeah, so it's not unusual. A lot of people, it resonates with them that I, that I started in my 30s, and many people are starting, you know, like when they retire, and I think it's great. Yeah, John was 50. Yeah. I, going back to uh, Harry, that first clinic, I, this, this stuff kind of always fascinates me. When you went back for that first clinic 10 years ago, was that a week-long clinic, or was it even longer than that? I stayed for two five-day clinics. And I should say right now that I've never seen anyone do clinics like Harry does. And Harry has now even developed another kind of clinic, and it's it's very unique to him. And I think it's spot on in terms of trying to really get something done with your horse. Um, before I met Harry, I went to clinics, and you'd see 25 people piled into arena. Mm-hmm. And the person who's got the biggest wreck is the one really getting the help. And then you've got, <laughs> you know the little mini-me at the back of the arena who is there to be in the clinic, but he's trying to teach these other two people who are trying to actually watch what the clinician is saying, you know, it's just, and they paid $500 for this, you know, I'm like, I don't get this. That's just a train wreck in my opinion. But so when I went to Harry's, I was really interested because he takes a maximum of six riders at his regular clinics. So there's six riders and horses there. And then auditors are, you know, as many otters as can fit in a spot or as can come. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't care where you start. He doesn't care what you work on. He's happy to work with anyone at any point at any place. So typically what happens is it'll go one horse at a time throughout the day and everybody watches that horse get worked. Now, there are times where people decide they're going to do a group ride together in the afternoon maybe. So it does happen. So there, there's not like this rigid formula to Harry's clinics. But oftentimes it'll be in a round pen. Sometimes it's in an arena. Sometimes it's just out and around the place. Sometimes it's a trailer loading, you know, all these Mm -hmm. things. Harry's just open to all of this. And so the way Harry's clinics work, a regular clinic is you have breakfast in the morning, you have a discussion sitting around the table after you eat. Then you go and you work a few horses, two or three usually, then you have lunch, then you have a discussion. And sometimes those after lunch discussions can be pretty darn intense. See, there's a lot of stuff going on because we're in the middle of the clinic. Mm-hmm. People have things, they have questions and they have access to Harry. I've also been to clinics where no one ever gets to ask a question, you know, or if they do, it's there's all this stuff going on. How can you think in that environment, you know? Mm-hmm. And so then after the after lunch discussion, you go through the afternoon working the rest of the horses. Then sometimes there's dinner. It depends on who's hosting the clinic or where it is. Sometimes there's dinner and then more discussion. Sometimes people go out and get dinner on their own, but we often gravitate back for even more discussions before we start again the next day. And I found that to be incredibly lucrative in terms of information gaining information, asking questions. An auditor has as much. I, I think I learned more as an auditor at his clinics than I did riding. And, mm. um, and I really encourage people to audit clinics. And if you don't go to clinics because there's not space for your horse to get in there, you're still, you're really missing out because stuff just comes in through osmosis and you go to work with your horse and then it's like reading a book and then six weeks later something hits you because that's where you are with your horse today all of a sudden, right? Mm. Um, 
So I really encourage people to audit, audit, audit. And, and so now, after the cold starting clinic that I talked about, um, one of the things people loved so much about that and were talking so much about that was being able to see Harry work so many horses in a row throughout a day mm-hmm. and felt that, that was such an education. And I had noticed over the years that when we're in a clinic and Harry rides somebody's horses, the changes he gets in these horses is amazing. And then the person gets on the horse and, and, and says, oh, my gosh, I've never felt that before. Mm-hmm. That's an education in and of itself. Harry goes to Tennessee for about four or five uh, clinics in the, in the spring every year. And back in, I think it was 2010, my horse Jubal, um, he used as a saddle horse through the whole uh, series of clinics there. And when I got on that horse after he had ridden it for five weeks, it was tremendous. I mean, it took me 15 minutes to mess it up, but it was amazing <laughs> to feel that what could be. And then you're like, okay, how do you, how did you do that? How do I get that? And you look and you observe. So um, after the Colt starting deal uh, in Tennessee, they tried a new type of clinic that's really stuck and has gotten really popular. And they've called it an intensive clinic. And it's a, a six-day clinic. Harry has five horses in it, and he rides all five horses every day for the first four days. And then the owners come in and uh, take over for the, the final two days. And I love to see these. And I love I, I post p- pictures of the horses sort of like day one, day three, day four. Uh-huh. The change, I mean, some horses don't look like the same horses. We actually measured a, hor- a couple horses the first day, and by the third day, the horses were actually taller when they'd go into the to the arena oh, wow. where they'd relax, they'd start to collect and round up some. Physically, their bodies would change to a pretty drastic extent. Some of these horses, it's an education. You don't you don't see that other places. I mean, I think Harry's really unique in that. Going back all the way back to your first question, what did I see different about Harry? It's just his extreme desire to be able to not only get better with horses and help a horse, but to be able to try to communicate that with people. There's a lot of great horsemen out there, and there's a lot of great horsemen that can get things going with the horse that give you a a complete wow factor. But it's something very different to try to teach that to somebody else. And so not everyone is a great teacher that's a great horseman. And it's something that I struggle with. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, how do I, now that I'm teaching and doing clinics, I realize how difficult it is. I mean, I can go get a change with a horse. Well, but that doesn't help the horse if the person who owns the horse mm-hmm. and rides the horse can't get that change and maintain that change, understand what goes into that, what that, what it means to get that done. So um, I think he's, he's so good at both, getting improvements with the horse as well, and, and communicating to people how to go about that. And I know he still struggles at it, um, but but I just, you know, I think he's a master at that. that that's so important. I remember my one of my first clinics, it was more than 20 years ago, and I won't name the trainer, but it was really fun to watch. And I got home, and I had no idea what he was, how he had done anything. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's a misconception that we get in the mainstream that, we can take our horse to a trainer. Yeah. We send our horse to a trainer for 30 days, 60 to 90 days, and they should come back perfect, like a motorcycle. You turn it on, <laughs> you, you, you turn right, you turn left, yeah. it stops. 
it's it's not like that. You don't have a relationship with a motorcycle. You have a relationship with another living being that's got right. thoughts and has um, its own set of experiences that it brings to the table. You know, so that's why I don't I don't bring horses in to work horses. I go to people and work with their horses and them, and preferably where they're where they are working at, at their homes, at, at their stables, at their right. barns. You know. Mm-hmm. And I liked your thought about auditing because until you until you brought it up, I had really never considered auditing a a clinic. I I'm I'm kind of a hands-on guy. I I like to go in there and put my hands where they're supposed to be and feel the feel what the horse is doing underneath me. But I bet you can observe a lot of things from the sidelines. Not only what the clinician might be trying to to teach, but also the way the the clinic goers respond to that, and you can you can pick up some good techniques from that. So I'm gonna and, you, and you're not distracted by having your own horse. Hey, you That's know, what I, I was gonna say. Or now yeah. you get a nail in the head. <laughs> I mean, it's very distracting because we care about our animals. A gate yeah. clanks. Somebody, you know, something happens, and immediately your mind is on your horse, and it should be. I mean, we we should. Right. <laughs> have that kind of relationship and care for our horses. But when you're at a clinic, there's so much to be gained from being in the clinic, mentally completely focused there with what's going on. And if I, if I go and I just audit a clinic, I think, you know, I've got more of my brain. Now, I, there are things I have gotten from riding in clinics I could never have achieved from just auditing because right. hands-on, you're right, that, that experience. It's also like for me, I, I I usually get to ride once a year with Harry because we we host him here in uh, Virginia. Um, mm. I think and you just finished up it, with that, right? We just did. Yeah, we yeah. we've we've grown to two weeks here, and um, I rode in the second week. And it's a, a horse that I've worked with named Mirage. That's a, a mare we that my wife bred here on the place, and and she's been one of the toughest horses I've ever had to deal with. Oh, and so she's very um, pretty. <laughs> thank you, <laughs> and uh, and. It's a like a final exam each year, you know, to ride her in this clinic, mm-hmm. you know, and inevitably I'm like really happy because we've gotten this stuff done and I go to the clinic and the holes in what's going on get pointed out to me. And that's in a way it's it's kind of a downer because you're like, ah, oh, <laughs> man, we're going so good. We've got so much going and now we're here and there's these things that I didn't see that I didn't get that. But that's how we grow. And it, you know, I mean, I could take another horse and just have a, a great time at the clinic and, and, you know, not, not be pushing into problems as much all the time, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be growing as a horseman to the same extent. And then like this year, we really made some profound changes and I brought them home and been able to continue here on the farm. And the fulfillment of that after going through difficulty is tremendous, you know, and, and, and now I'm better equipped to go and teach other people when I come across a horse that's a little tough or I see some of these aspects that Mirage has presented me and other horses. Um, I did a clinic last year uh, at a, at a horse rescue in Virginia and they had a bunch of horses and they brought me one out and that horse, I think I would have gotten hurt working that horse if I had not worked Mirage because she presented some of the same rearing striking deals. And I, I, and I was ahead of it, but not by a whole lot. And if I hadn't had the experience of Mirage, I might not have been 
able to see what was about to happen and been ready to deal with that because she was a handful even then. But so, you know, I'm really grateful for the tough horses. Um, unfortunately, mine seem like they're always tough horses, but you know, <laughs> it's just the way, the way that's worked out. And it's been to my benefit in some way, pushing the envelope for me. In uh, the, the AQHA article, the, the photographs I was looking at, you have kind of a interesting a bridle setup there. It doesn't look like there's a bit in the horse's mouth. I'm not sure. I don't have that photo in front of me, but that I rode uh, just with a halter and the halter rope. I just tied it back around to the halter. Well, that's it. Um, is that so a leather it's halter? It's a thick leather halter. Yeah. This is leather? Okay, so that's a side pull uh, made um. by a fellow named Jamie Wilcox in uh, Tennessee. And it was a, I was borrowing it to try it out, and I really, really liked it. Um, and it's made as a side pull, so, you know, it has a nose band, and it fits like a, like a halter would, and it's got rings on the side so that mm-hmm. you can attach reins, essentially is all it is. I can get just about anything done in a side pull that I can in a, in a bit, a snaffle bit. You know, it's very directional. And again, in, in thinking in terms of how I approach horsemanship and what I've learned from Harry, you want to access your horse's thoughts. So if you put a little feel on one of those reins, I would hope that my horse would would take notice of that and then begin to take an interest in the direction that I'm that I'm putting the feel on there. And what we see so much of in in the world, um, if you just go to just any horse show and have a look, as soon as a person touches the bit, that horse starts to brace. The neck comes mm-hmm. up you know, and they'll they'll put a feel on, on a rein, and instead of the horse taking an interest in that direction and coming around and looking and thinking about going there, they actually pull their heads the opposite direction. You'll see the whites of their eyes as they look hard the opposite way. Right. They resist against any type of uh, request by the person on those reins. And it's no wonder that when people ride horses that are uh, in that type of condition and mindset that they have wrecks and, and difficulties, mm-hmm. things don't go well. When we begin to talk about where's our horse's thought, a horse that is really upset, for instance, and there's a, a simple way to visualize this, is say you're standing in the middle of a round pen and somebody puts a horse in there with you. That horse is running around all over the place, very upset. So the horse's head is very much up and looking out of the pen, right? Right. So what I might do is, say I've got a flag, I would just whack that flag one time. Well, that horse is probably going to be a little bit more upset because I whacked the flag and run around. But the fact that I got a, any change at all in that horse means the, change, the horse is acknowledging that, at least acknowledging that I'm in the pen now, right? Right. And I'm not one to go chasing a horse around the pen. I see a lot of people want to chase that horse, chase it, chase it, chase it, and then suck back in, creating this vacuum, and that horse comes into them. And they think, oh, I've done such a great thing. Well, all you've done is you've made it worse out there than it is in here. And the horse doesn't like being with you any more than being out there, but they know you're going to chase them if they're out there. And I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to get the best place in the world between me and that horse to be here with me in the middle of the pen. So I'm not going to chase my horse. If that horse is still busy out there, I'll crack again. And what happens is eventually the horse will try something different besides thinking outside of the pen and running around. And eventually, 
throughout this search, which can take, sometimes it's quick, sometimes it can take a long time, but that horse will end up starting to check you out, acknowledging you there, look you up. I call it, the, the horse is bringing his thought towards me, which mm-hmm. is different. That's the difference. I actually think of a horse's thought bouncing out of his head and bouncing out of the pen. And wherever a horse's thought is, that's where he wants to get his body. Right. If his, if his thought is right here and his body's right here together in the same place at the same time, that horse will be calm. That horse can be right here and be chill. But if that horse's mind is with his buddies at the barn and there's a fence between him and his buddies, that's when things get really bad and busy. So mm-hmm. essentially I'm working to bring his thought towards me. And when that thought gets focused here, then we can start to talk about things. And then we can start to send that thought in the sense of, I can put a feel on the lead line and say, can you think out to your left? And I will sometimes get a good look in that direction. And that's all I'm looking for at first. Because I want to have that interest and that look in that direction before that horse moves a foot. Because that horse will take himself in that direction if he has enough interest in going there. If you watch a horse just out here with a bunch of other horses naturally, they almost always turn and look at something, get an interest, and then take their, themselves where they're looking, you know. And that's what I'm trying to get going with the horse. And um, yeah. so that, I don't know, that's, that's a visual, I think, that's kind of easy to understand in trying to discuss this it is. sort of unique uh, underpinning of horsemanship that I've gotten from Harry that I try to, um, to, to utilize and to teach people. And what I took from that is that there are those little steps and... Those are the things that, as um, when I started horsemanship, were difficult for me to comprehend. Was this? I had to get my signal going, and then be patient enough to wait for the horse to start offering different solutions. You know, if they didn't offer the the right solution, the solution didn't come right away. I, I really wanted to force things on it. But then I started going, you know, if I just stand here long enough, he's going to, he's going to start offering different answers to the question that I'm giving. And, and then like you said, once you get his attention, then you want the next step to be maybe to look to the left. And then the next step, to be the step towards the left. But you can't ask for the step before the look, so you kind of have to do those steps in order. Yeah, there's a lot there that comes to mind in what you just said. And one of the main things that comes to my mind is when to get a little busy and when to wait. And for me, the differentiation between those things comes in whether or not the horse is searching or not. So if a horse is not searching, I might get pretty busy. I might get big. I might be intolerant even of a horse standing there doing absolutely nothing. (laughs) But if a horse is searching, for instance, say I've got a, I'm standing looking at my horse and the lead rope is connecting my right hand to his halter. So I, I, I hold out my right hand and offer a feel for him to look to my right, go around me to the right, circle to my right, take a step and go. And he doesn't do anything. Well, I'm going to slap my leg, make a noise. Now, what people want to do intuitively is they want to 
actually walk around to the side of the horse and start to <laughs> drive that horse forward, see? And that's not what I want. I don't want to, I don't want my horse getting away from me in any way, shape, or form. I'm not going to swing the tail of my lead rope at the butt of that horse to make him go forward on a circle. That's not the kind of relationship I want. Right. Um, I want to offer a feel for that horse to go with and that we go together. So I'm going to put my hand up. There's going to be slack in that rope, and I'm going to offer it. Now, if he's not doing anything, I might take the end of my rope and slap my my chaps and make a noise or a cluck or slap my thigh with my hand, and that is not done at his body to make him drive in that direction. That is merely to say, you need to think about this and start trying something else. And so say I'm offering to go to my right, and he decides to try something, so he goes the opposite direction to the left. Well, the slack comes out of my lead rope now, and there's this tight lead rope, and he's trying to go the opposite way. I'm mm-hmm. going to let him do that. I'm going to keep slapping my leg, and I'm not going to make a motion at him at all, but I'm going to keep making, like, hey, try something different, try something different. And he may, may go a half a circle in the wrong direction, but he's not getting... He's not getting a sweet spot with me and a release for doing that. I'm just, I just keep presenting. And that's where the patience comes in. Mm-hmm. Giving him the freedom to make a mistake and work at it. And then, so I slap my leg, slap my leg. Finally, he's like, okay, this is not working out. <laughs> then he'll turn around. Maybe he'll try the direction. Oh, okay. Then I relax and I'm already got to walk in me and we're walking together. And that sweet spot comes in there. And it's not... When people talk about pressure and release, I get worried that they think of the release as nothing. They stop. The release is just nothing. It's not. The release should be this sweet spot that you're offering your horse. It's still, you're connected to your horse, but it's like, yeah, it's thank you. Yes, let's go. Let's go in this direction. Follow. We're doing this. And that feels good. Now, this setting up a search you start doing that with simple things like asking a horse to back or look a direction or go out and circle around you in the groundwork. Before you know it, your horse understands that every time there's an imbalance of some, time, some kind between you and the horse, that there will be an answer, and that sweet spot is there somewhere. they just got to find it. So it's less troubling to the horse. At first, it can be very troubling because they'll have a panic. They don't understand, and they're confused, and they've maybe been around people who aren't consistent with how they handle reins and lead ropes. And so it's very troubling. I see this all the time. Mm-hmm. But when you get consistent and you offer a search, and when the horse gets the right answer, you're immediately there. Thank you. Yes, that's good. And that sweet spot comes in there. That horse will begin to look for that and all that you do with them. And, and right. So, they'll know it's there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's the, the beginning of a really good relationship. You know? Oh, I can't wait to go try that. <laughs> <laughs> In all, in all the things that I observe and describe and develop in, in the books, these are the kinds of things that are between the lines and, and, and even in the examples that come out um, just from my observations and experiences. And so I try to, you know, I try to make it kind of practical in that, uh-huh. that how, how can we visualize this? How can we see this? Talk about it. So, and that's hard to do. I mean, sitting down as a writer, first of all, you've got to sort of experience and learn and visualize. Then you've got to have language to talk about. Then you've got to be able to put it on the page in a way that you hope a person can grab it off the page and, and understand what you're saying. And it's a tough deal. 
It is a tough deal, especially with us older, because you're dealing with us older people who (laughs) have a hard time from reading something on the sofa to walking back out to the barn to (laughs) once you try it. (laughs) I think that's why people like the actual printed copies of the books. They can drag them with them. (laughs) Even though they're not a how-to, it's still people like to have it out there. Just refer. (laughs) This has been a lot of fun, Tom. We I'm hoping to uh, have Harry on the show in a couple of weeks. Maybe we can talk to him. Probably not. Probably not likely, but yeah, <laughs> he doesn't really do interviews. So I like to think of them as conversations. Do you think he'd, he'd like that approach a little bit better? It's just talking horses. He does that all the time. I'm just, I'm just warning you. Okay. <laughs> I mean, well, I'll tune in if you get it done, but <laughs> <laughs> the challenge is well, on. But we really appreciate your your advice and and hearing your story and talking about the 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 different things that are available out there to people who, if they just want to look for them. And just hearing about your journey, it, it's very fun, very passionate. So we've well, enjoyed I'd, that. I'd, I can't think of anything I'd rather talk about, honestly. Um, <laughs> uh, being completely horse obsessed, it's easy for me to sit down and get carried away. So just uh, you know, to remind folks in terms of if they want to find out more about me and about the books, they can always go to my website. The books are available anywhere. Amazon or whatever, but I do have the website uh, tommodes.com, which looks like a badly misspelled tomatoes.com. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's a Facebook page too. So. I think the Facebook page is a horse's thought. Um, there's always okay. there's always some nonsense going on there for folks to enjoy. I'll put Excellent. all those links into the show notes at wopodcast.com and people can find you quite easily through there too. All right. Well, thank yeah. you very much. Thank, thank you, you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to Tom Motes. I know I went a little bit long on that one too, Renee. You were having too much fun talking. <laughs> you know, uh, Tom Tom and I have a lot in common. And once we start talking horses, it's a little bit hard to get us uh, to, <laughs> to get us off the, the microphone, as it were. But we really appreciate him coming on. You can find uh, all the links to Tom Tom's books, his website, his Facebook page at wopodcast.com. I'll have all the links right there. We talk to a lot of trainers on the show. If you have a question about your horse and want some free advice, you can leave your question on our listener line. That number is 661-368-5530. Or you can email John at john at woepodcast. And that'll do it for this show. Please visit woepodcast.com and sign up for our emails to stay up to date. If you have a suggestion for a guest, a comment, just email me at John at woepodcast.com. Use the Apple Podcast app to subscribe to the Woe Podcast and you will never miss an episode. You can also subscribe on Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. They're all free and all are on woepodcast.com. The Woe Podcast is produced by John and Renee Hare with occasional research support from Robin Kane and support from you, our listeners. If you would like to support the show, Visit wopodcast.com and click on the Patreon button. Thanks again for listening and sharing this podcast with your riding buddies. Until next time, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. Visit wopodcast.com and click on the orange Patreon bit. But <laughs> <Try that. laughs> it didn't work. <laughs>